Good morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. So if you have your Bible, um, you're using version app, like whatever you use to kind of follow along, I encourage you to jump into Matthew chapter 18. We're going to pick up in verse 10. Jesus said, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You may have heard this passage before, or at least part of this passage, this parable story of a shepherd and a sheep that goes missing. Uh, it shows up in another gospel. It shows up in Luke's gospel, uh, in Luke chapter 15, and it's said in a response. The, the Pharisees are concerned about Jesus and the company that he's keeping. They're watching the people that he's spending time with. It's tax collectors. It's sinners. They're discussing, like, what kind of godly man would spend time with those people. And then we get a sequence of stories. We get this story about a lost sheep. Uh, Luke records a story about a lost coin. And then we get a very famous parable that many of you may know, the, the prodigal son story. And so when, when Luke tells it, there, there's a certain amount of uh, the context is about sinners. It's about those that are outside the faith kind of that God cares about, that are repenting, that are, are, are coming to the Lord through Christ. When Matthew's gospel tells this story, when he includes it, he is putting it right in the middle of a conversation that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, a conversation about greatness, when Matthew tells the story and records this from Jesus, it's within the context of greatness. The disciples have been having a conversation about who's going to be great in the kingdom of God. Every kingdom has structure. Every kingdom has leaders. Every kingdom has people at the top, people in the middle, people in the bottom. Like the disciples, where are we going to be, Jesus? Like where are we going to be in the kingdom? And Jesus uses this moment, this story, and this parable about a shepherd and a sheep to highlight what real and true greatness is. When the disciples ask Jesus about who's going to be great, Jesus takes a child, and he sits it right in front of them, and he says, if you want to know what greatness looks like, it looks like this. It's, it's this child. You have to become childlike to even enter into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying something really upside down because he's saying something to the disciples like, if you want to know what greatness is, it's not being great. Greatness is not being great. So it's like this child, it's the smallness of this child. It's this humility that the child walks in because the child knows that it's small. Like it, it knows that it's not great. It walks in a low, small stature. And you too, you need to walk in humility. You're not going to get into the kingdom of God if pride, if arrogance, if posturing, if rank and hierarchy are the things that you're thinking about because those things don't work within the kingdom of God in the same way they work within the kingdom of the world. So Jesus takes this child and he says, not only are you have to be like this, but your smallness will make you aware of others that are also small. Your smallness, your childlikeness will make you aware of other little ones 
those who are struggling, those who are in need, those that you are now going to be sensitive to and given to. And Jesus takes a shift from talking about a child to this idea of little ones. And we see that in our passage too, reflected here, little ones, other brothers and sisters uh, in Christ that are struggling, that are not powerful, they're not influential people. Like when Jesus highlights these little ones, he's referencing those ideas for us way back in Matthew about the poor in spirit those that are meek, those that are mourning, right? It's this group of people that are in the margins. They're on the fringe. They're struggling. They're, they're, they're not powerful people. They're not influencers, right? That's not who your smallness is going to make you more aware of them and how your life now either helps or hurts. Greatness is not about rank, It's not about kind of leading the crowd. It's about loving the one. How is your life helping or hurting the one, the little one? That's what Jesus is highlighting here. So he gives us two reasons why. Jesus says your life is going to be evaluated by how you help or hurt the one. And he gives us two reasons. The first one is, he says, for I tell you that even in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That's a fascinating verse, right? It, there's a, angels in heaven, their angels, the little one's angels. There's something, you know, there's a lot here. There was a fairly developed uh, angelology in Jesus' day. There were lots of ideas about angels, how they functioned, their purpose. And one of the popular views on angels were that even in heaven, angels hid their face from the glory of God, that they could not look upon the face of God. And you see that actually validated in Isaiah chapter six. If you're familiar with this section of scripture, Isaiah goes into the temple and he sees the glory of God. The glory of God just fills the temple like smoke. Then he has a vision of God sitting on his throne and these angels, these celestial beings circling the throne, they're called seraphim. And these seraphim, the word seraph means to burn. So they're, they're burning with worship. They're burning with passion. They're, they're, they're burning with God's glory. And they're circling the throne of God. But it says that they had wings. And with some of their wings, they covered their eyes. With some of their wings, they covered their feet. And with, with a pair of wings, they flew. In other words, they, they were hiding their face from the glory of God. These created heavenly beings had to shield their eyes from the uncreated glory of their creator. It was that strong, that radiant, that powerful. So this idea that angels hid their face from the face of God in heaven is something that we see in Isaiah 6. And then Jesus says something very different. Jesus says something in contrast to that. He says, but their angels, the angels of these little ones actually see the face of God. In other words, the angels that behold the full glory of God, that fix their gaze upon God himself are the angels that are advocating for little ones, for the Christians that are struggling. The angels that see the face of God are those that are there on behalf of those who are hurting and in need. What an amazing thing. Angels were viewed as warriors soldiers, fighters for God's glory. And now what you see Jesus saying is those warriors and soldiers that have all access to heaven are those who fight for the poor, for the needy, for the little ones, all access. So why 
should we not despise? Why should we not look down? Why should we not distance ourselves because of this? This worldly greatness always kind of has this way of distancing people from one another. Worldly greatness is a, a climb, right? A climb of success, a climb of achievement where you're no longer part of the ordinary. You're no, part, no longer part of the common. Like worldly greatness is always creating distance and always separating people out from one another. It's why we still find it a pleasant surprise when a well-known celebrity stays a little bit longer to sign autographs. Right? That, that catches the news. We're like, wow, man, that's pretty nice. Or that well-known athlete takes a tour of the hospital and just spend time with, spends time with people that are sick. Like we're like, that is unusual. That's not typical of worldly greatness. Worldly greatness tends to separate. Worldly greatness tends to create distance between those that are great and those that aren't. And Jesus is saying something about what kingdom greatness looks like. That it will not be a one in which we look down on others. It will not be a way in which we despise one another and distance ourselves from one another. But there's a movement closer. And Jesus says, first, it's because even the angels of these little ones see the face of God. And then secondly, the second reason Jesus gives us that why Christians don't distance themselves from other little ones is because of the shepherd. Because of the shepherd. Look back in verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? He says, what do you think? I like the way he starts that out. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one goes missing, does he not leave the 99 to go search for the one? And I'm thinking, I don't know. Like you're asking me what I think. I don't, does he? Does he really leave 99 kind of with someone else or unattended? to go find the one that went missing? Isn't there just kind of a, a, a risk with raising sheep? Don't, every now and then doesn't one go missing? Don't you just kind of assume, right? Does it make a lot of sense to leave 99 for one that goes astray? Right, this is the question. Because sheep do wander off. It's kind of part of what they do. Sheep aren't really smart animals. And if you've been around kind of church for a while, like the, the idea and the metaphor of sheep is often kind of levied and kind of placed upon God's people. Like we're sheep, we need a shepherd. And, and there's a lot of similarities, a lot of characteristics about sheep that, that apply well because sheep are, are not real smart. And if, you, if you're wondering about that, let me just recall a video that you may have seen about a sheep being caught in a ditch. Have you seen this video? Right, it gets caught in a ditch. If you haven't seen this video, we'll take a look real quick just so we can all be on the same page. <laughs> I can watch that all day long. <laughs> so sheep wander off. Sheep do things like that. And what's interesting about the story that Jesus tells is it could have gone a different way. Like the story could have been a sheep wandered off, the shepherd was disappointed, and the sheep needed to find a way to get back. The sheep made a bad decision. The sheep was reckless. It wasn't paying attention. It wandered off, and the story could be, and the sheep began to try to figure out how to get home. But that's not the story. The story that you begin to realize is 
within a question of who goes to whom. Right? Who, who is leaving? Who is traveling? It's the shepherd who goes to find the lost sheep. When Jennifer and I were first married, before you have kids, you get a dog. And so we got our first dog. Uh, his name, he was a little Jack Russell Terrier, really cute, a lot of fun. His name was Flick. We named him after the character in the Christmas story who you know, licks the frozen flagpole, right? Which is, I love that kid. Like, so he, he's going to, you know, we're going to think about him all the time. So Flick was a lot of fun. And we lived in a in kind of a remote area, rural area out in Fort Worth, working at a church there. We lived on the church property, kind of out in the country. So we lived in a little house on the property up on a hill, and it was scenic, beautiful fields, farmland all around us. Not a lot of houses, but it was a great place for a dog to just run and explore. And Flick would disappear for 30 minutes, sometimes an hour, come back with something that he'd caught, some trophy, or he'd rummage around in the church trash can and bring us Wednesday night dinner, right? And kind of leave it on the back porch. Like this was, a, he was always having fun. We were always entertained by where he would go and what he would do. On this particular night though, Jennifer and I get home. He goes out. We haven't seen him in a while. And Jennifer's like, where is he? I don't know. Well, it's, it's a weird January, February evening in Fort Worth. It's actually cold. Uh, snow is predicted. It's getting dark. And she's like, where's the dog? Like, and I'm like, I don't know. And I could tell, like, I need to go find the dog. I could tell that question means you need to go find Flick. And so I'm like, so I go outside. I'm calling Flick. Like, where are you? Nothing. Usually, I mean, within seconds, he typically responds, nothing. I'm looking around. I'm like, it's getting dusk now. It is starting to flurry. I can see a few houses in the distance. People that I have never met, not even really thought of. They're just like houses a long way away. I'm like, I don't know. She says, you need to go to those people and see if they've seen our dog. So there's not an immediate road. I'm climbing over fences. I'm walking through fields. I finally make it to this first house. And I knock on the door and the lights come on. I'm like, hey, I'm Ross. I'm a neighbor. I live up on the hill there by the church. Have you seen a Jack Russell Terrier around here? And he's like, oh, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes he makes his way down here. But no, I, I haven't seen him tonight. I, I don't, don't, don't know where. I haven't seen him. But the, the house, uh, you know, a few hundred yards over there, they have kids. Maybe you should check there. But okay, thank you. So I walk a few hundred yards. It's now dark. It's beginning to flurry. I knock on the door. I can hear a lot of commotion behind the door. A mom opens up. I'm like, hi, neighbor Ross, Jack Russell Terrier. Have you seen like, oh, yes. Let me check. Let me ask the kids. He's often upstairs. Like the kids, yeah, the, the kids like to feed him biscuits. And I'm like, oh, Oh, okay, okay. Kids, have you seen the little Jack Russell? Like they're hollering, no, they haven't seen him. She was like, no, we, we don't know, so sorry. But there's one more house that you can see in the distance, like check there. And I'm like, okay, make my way over there, pitch black now, fully snowing, knocking on the door. It took a long time for the lady to answer the door. I'm like, hi, I'm so sorry to bother you. Like, I know it's surprised you even opened the door, but have you seen like a Jack Russell Terrier? And she's like, yes, yeah. He's in my laundry room right now. He's bedding down for the night. And I'm like, he, he is? And I walk to the house and I walk up to the laundry room. And you know, there's these moments that you can have with your pet. And he looks at me and I look at him and he's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I mean, he has that kind of look where his head, I'm like, I'm like how many families do you have? <laughs> and I realized in this moment, he had no intention of coming home. 
That was not on his plan. He was not, this dog was not coming home. Has there ever been a moment in your life where you didn't want to go home? Has there ever been a moment in your life where you had walked away, uh, done enough, messed up, kind of set your own direction, and you actually, you weren't coming back. I I can remember moments in my life where there was actions and thoughts and words that still have a, a certain level of shame connected to them. Because I, I don't know if I would have come home. I really was doing my own thing. I was, I was kind of making my own plans and I, I was, was not interested in what God had for me. And I think about that moment for me that somebody had to come. Somebody had to come and, and get me. And no matter what I'd gotten myself into, no matter how thought, how far away from home I had become, Jesus tells a story about a shepherd who goes, who finds, who seeks so that we could come home. Peter picks up on this. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. I think, I think there's times where we, where we didn't want to be rescued. And what it reveals is a lostness that we must be saved from. That we walk in a lostness that, that we can't recover. That the, the distance that's been created by our lives and actions can, can create a gap in our lives where we, we don't know how to get back. We don't know how to return. And what Jesus is beginning to say is there's a place that you can get into where you cannot find your way back, that someone must come and rescue you. And Peter says that Jesus, Jesus did. That at the expense of his own life, at the cost of his own life, that the shepherd would lay his life down for the sheep. That Jesus would come the distance. That he would seek you out even when you didn't want to be rescued. And what's wonderful and it's clarifying is that it, it helps adjust all of our thoughts about kind of works-based salvation that is still popular with the people around us, that if I can just be a little more good than I am bad, I'll be fine. That if I can just tip the scales with one more good deed or one moral act, that, that I, I'll be fine with God. But the fact that Jesus had to come and to give his life shows that you couldn't recover, that works-based salvation is absurd because there's a need and a gap and a distance that we've all experienced in our lives that only God himself could span. And he did. That Jesus gave his life in this way. He died to accomplish something that was beyond anything that we could recover from. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus... 
you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. The shepherd, right, sets out. He finds the sheep and you are brought near by the shepherd. In other words, you, the shepherd brings you home. The shepherd comes home for you. He goes out, he brings you in, and all along the way, he rejoices. He lets other people know the sheep has been found. Like, do you, like there's this excitement in him about what it means, not just for the 99 to stay put, but for that one to go out and to be retrieved, to be saved, to return. He, rejo- he rejoices. And maybe it makes us wonder, well, how valuable is this sheep to the shepherd? It must be so amazing. It must be more precious than we can imagine. And that's not untrue, but that's not really the point. The point is not the value of the sheep. The point is the character of the shepherd. That he would have predisposed himself to us. That even in our lostness, he would come. That even in our lostness, he would go the distance. It highlights the passion of the shepherd and the nature of his character that he would go, that he would look and that he would search. And I think this can help us with a word that we often use within our Christian language called, and where we, where we talk about people being lost. It's a word that we use to describe people that are outside the faith. But that word lost picks up with it some negative connotations. Like people that are lost are worldly. People that are lost have a corruptness about them. But when you look at this story and you begin to consider what what lostness describes within this context, lost people are people that are sought after. They're people that are missing They're people that are desired. And when you begin to see the movement of the shepherd towards those that are lost, you begin to realize that he wants people home. And a person, right, a person God loves in this heroic pursuit, that God would send his own son to die on the cross, on Calvary, telling us that it isn't his desire. It it isn't him keeping us from coming home. He wants all his little ones. He wants his family. He wants his kids to return. He's not reluctant in this. Maybe we're the reluctant ones. Maybe we're the ones that would feel like, I'm just too dirty, too tattered, too unclean, too unlovable. But we can't assume that God loves us that way unless we see ourselves with a love that is fierce and intense and deep in the way the shepherd loves. This is what we begin to realize. I saw this quote. It's been an encouragement to me this week. It reads, the eyes of mercy are quicker than the eyes of repentance. He sees a sinner long before a sinner sees him. The eyes of mercy are quicker than the eyes of repentance. He sees a sinner long before a sinner sees him. And I love what this means because what it says is that God doesn't come to you when you're doing well. God's pursuit of you is not the prettiest version of you. I hope you hear that. That when God comes, when he comes to seek, when he comes to save, it's when you are lost right where you are. Sometimes when you don't even want to be rescued. God comes and it's not the best version of you. That God will go the distance, that he will leave others behind. And perhaps in that moment where you encounter God's pursuit of you, where his love becomes real, where you realize that, that there's, a, there's an 
a moment in your own life to confess and to repent. Know that when you're confessing and when you're repenting, you are already in the arms of the shepherd. He already has you on his shoulder. If you're the prodigal son or daughter, he's already kissing your neck. He's already there. He loves us this much. And if that's true, then why would we ever look down on another Christian that's struggling? This is, this is the challenge of Jesus' words. Why would we despise any of the little ones, those on the margins, those that are weak, those that are frail in their faith, right? those that are unimportant? Why would we ever separate ourselves? And why would we create categories? Why would we distance ourselves when the shepherd has come in search of you, when you were at your worst? When you didn't want to be rescued and God pursued you, now what happens is that truth so lands in our hearts that it reshapes how we now think and care for others. It puts us also on alert of how to help. And Jesus says the Father longs to see all of the little ones home. Do you know that? Like, listen to how Paul picks this idea up in 1 Corinthians of how we got here and who's in. Verse 26 of chapter one, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Like This idea of who's great, this idea of separateness and distance that we create with one another, it just doesn't fit anymore. Because none of us got here by royal birth. None of us got here because we were somehow wise. None of us got here because we figured this out. It was God moving, God working. It was what God was going to do through Jesus that brought you in. And God's going to use weak things, shameful people, foolish people to now show his glory. So who can boast about their own kind of walk with the Lord and where they are in their spiritual lives? No one. If we boast anything, it's because God did something in us. It's because God came. Is because he sought, he pursued, he chased me down with a reckless, heroic kind of love. That's what we get to say. I want to, want to take where we are and I want to help shape the way we walk through the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. Because the Lord's Supper is a wonderful act and remembrance of the shepherd laying his life down for the sheep of the sacrifice that was made so that we could be close, the distance that was covered so that you and I could be home. I mean, the Lord's Supper is that. But the Lord's Supper is meant not only to remind us of the work of God, the Lord's Supper is meant to to bring us closer together. It's meant to do something as well between one another. The Lord's Supper is meant to, to bring us in a more intimate kind of fellowship that we're not only remembering him, but we're remembering this family. We're remembering one another. Let me show you how the Corinthians got in trouble here and how the Lord's Supper was something that Paul challenged them on. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. It says, but in the following instructions, 
I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So when you gather, it's bad. It's better that you not gather, is what he's saying. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I think he's being quite sarcastic here. And when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here's what's happening. The church is gathering in Corinth. This, This Lord's Supper meal is more of a meal at that point. There's probably a special point within this larger meal and feast in which they hold up the cup and the bread unto Jesus. But this meal, people are coming up and they're eating a lot. Some aren't getting any. Like they're, they're joining this gathering and it's as if they're coming with this sense of personal worship, personal reflection on how Jesus has saved me without any reference to the people around them and how they're doing and their connection to the family. Can a church still do this? Can a church show up on Sunday and give vertical worship without any real reference that how my life is meant to now touch yours and yours mine? We have two campuses and four services. It makes it easier to walk in and just to experience the Lord for yourself and be unaware if the person next to you is eating or not. Tired or not, hurting or not. Are they little ones? Are they struggling in their faith? Is Jesus saying, don't, don't create distance between the body in this way, thinking about who's great, who's arrived, who's achieved, and those that haven't. But he's creating a family. And if we're looking after one another, we're aware of one another, we're sensitive to one another, this is what we begin to see what would it look like for us to show up on a Sunday morning and say, who's here and who isn't? Who's not here that needs to be? Who's struggling right now in their faith? Where do I need to go? As the shepherd has modeled this pursuit of those that are lost to seek them and to save them, to go the distance, what would it look like for my life to also reach out to those that are in trouble to see if there's any aspect of our life that's creating distance with the ones the shepherd is here to save? This is is the high challenge in this passage. So as we share the Lord's Supper here in just a minute, I do want us to take a moment to reflect and to realize that the shepherd did lay his life down for the sheep and the shepherd went the distance. And in doing so, if you love the Lord and have called upon your Lord and Savior, and when you take this bread and this juice, you are reminding the world and the church of the sacrifice that our shepherd made. But what if this morning we also took the Lord's Supper and said, who's not here? Who's missing? Who needs help? That we're not walking through this beautiful observance of what Jesus did to make a family, to make us one, and still find ourselves divided, despising, 
distant, separate. So this morning, just a minute, I hope there's someone in the room that you might look around and go, just, man, I'm so thankful for that person and who they are in my life. That we look around and we see who's here and we're like, and, and I may be new here, but like, Lord, I thank you for including me in this moment. Who else needs to be here? That we move through this process of seeing what the shepherd has done and how he's touched our lives and how that sets us up differently for others. Listen to Ezekiel 34, just a few verses here. and We're going to wrap up. I just want you to hear this passage and hear the heart of the shepherd. He says, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them. So I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their land and I will pasture them and I will tend them in a good pasture. There they will lie down in good grazing land. I myself will tend them. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here, but in your heart you feel lost and distant and separate. But this morning you're, you're here and you're on, you're on some kind of return. And you need to hear from this passage and others that God is pursuing you, that the shepherd is becoming hopefully more and more real to you, that you can hear God at work, that you can begin to sense that. And maybe you gave up at some point, but God didn't. God didn't. And you can be part of the return and that you can be part of the fame again. And it doesn't matter how far you've gone or where you've been or what you've done. The shepherd can bring you home. Through his life and through his death and through his resurrection, you can come home and be part of the family. For others in the morning, this morning, maybe what you need to do is you're enjoying what it is to be near God, to to worship again in a new way of how you've been saved. It's not just that, but it's like, who else needs help? What are the other little ones that need care, love, strengthening? Where are the people around you that are injured and weak? Go there. Jesus says that's greatness. That your life will not be measured in greatness by what you lead and what you create and what you build and what you achieve, but your life in the kingdom will be measured in greatness by those that you love that are little, those that are small. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this passage this morning. It, 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 it moves within my own heart of so grateful for a shepherd that would seek out the one. So, um, so humbled and um, almost just struggling to fully believe that you would do that for me and for others. That Jesus would come and lay down his life, that he would be the good shepherd, 
so that we might find ourselves at home again. And so Lord, I just thank you for that, that that's available and possible for each person here, each person listening, each person that feels lost or weak or struggling. For those that are weak, there there are angels in heaven advocating for you. That God is working in ways that you don't even see or understand that you might find yourself at home with him again. That if Christ would die on the cross for us in all of what Calvary was, let us not be reluctant in our return, but let us confess and let us repent and let us be received. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. We'll give you these next few moments as we begin to reflect on your sacrifice, not just for us, but for our family and how the Lord's Supper is meant to do something not just between us and you, but between us and each other, um, between one another. And I pray that you'll just continue to work that out in us this morning. We pray all this in your name. Amen. I'd encourage you just to take the the bread. You know, when Jesus when Jesus put the disciples together before the cross, celebrating the Passover meal, and he it it took a shift. It it began to take all these um, elements from the Exodus, and it began to land them right on Jesus. And the bread was this unleavened bread. And it was unleavened because it didn't have time to rise. And because when God moved, when salvation came to the Israelites, freedom happened so fast, it was so rapid, it was so wonderful that the bread didn't have time to rise. And so they used this unleavened bread every year to celebrate this freedom work that God had done, like taking people from Egypt, slaves, and making them sons and daughters. There was this blood that was poured on the doorposts of each home, the lamb, the lamb of sacrifice, and that blood would then create a covering. And so as the angel of death went over all of Egypt and everyone was judged, if the blood had been applied to the doorposts of your home, you were saved, you were covered. And so within this meal, there were these elements, this bread, this wine that symbolized the blood. But when Jesus was eating with the disciples, you know what there's not a reference to? the lamb, the lamb itself. Because the lamb is Jesus. Because Jesus is the lamb at the table who gives his life for the sins of the world so that you could be free, so that you could be covered, so that death would not touch your life and so that we could be family. So as we reflect and remember his sacrifice, just encourage you to take the bread that Jesus took and he held it up and blessed it. He said, this is my body broken for you, eat. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant and in it is my blood and it will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink. Jesus, thank you for 
what this meal represents. It is a picture of greatness. It's a picture of greatness. The one who was the greatest coming low. The one who was above us in every way. Holy, holy, holy. Descending, traveling, finding us right where we were in all of our mess, in all of our sin, in all of our dysfunction, dying on a cross so that by your blood, Jesus, we could be healed. By your blood, we could be brought in and be made near. We thank you for that truth. Remembering that we were separated from you. As Ephesians says, excluded from citizenship, foreigners to the covenant and promise, without hope, without God, but now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We celebrate that this morning. And in our celebration, God, would you fill us with the heart of the shepherd that we might not only enjoy and remember and worship in what you've done in our lives, but we would be looking for those that are weak, injured, struggling, not separating ourselves from them, but but closing the gap, just as you have done in our own lives. Lord, give us actual names. Give us people that would come to mind right now that we need to go to and seek out. Help us, Lord, to walk out this life. Let it, let it flow from us to others. Let it be that true of what the shepherd has said in our life that we can't help but also begin to follow his same pursuits, carry his same love and passions. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.